Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Robert Blackwell, a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and Bloomberg opinion columnist. Robert, let's start here. How do you convince a foreign country of the responsibility that comes with great power? Well, I don't think you convince uh, a foreign country or most anybody else by uh, hectoring them or constantly lecturing them. I hope the president will begin the conversation with Xi by uh, essentially saying, uh, we have a problem here. Uh, we may see the situation in Ukraine somewhat differently, but we both both want to first have a ceasefire and then find uh, an equitable way to end this war. And I hope he'll start like that and not start uh, with uh, you're on the wrong side of history or uh, with threats. It seems like, Robert, we have a superpower on the global stage that has a very different interpretation of the responsibility that comes with power. And Robert, I wonder if this is something you see repeating again and again over time, or whether a situation evolves within China where they start to change, they start to change their approach. Well, uh, first of all, uh, I wouldn't put it quite as you did. Uh, China has a different interpretation of its vital national interests than we uh, wish it did. And essentially, I believe the Chinese leadership thinks that the United States is determined to stop its rise, to contain it, if you will. And they see everything through, beginning with Xi, that uh, optic. And so what we have to do, I think, is first of all, while of course remaining strong and resolute in defending our national interests, we have to try to persuade them that isn't the case. And that's the context in which this conversation will happen this morning. Uh, I would remark that yesterday uh, the Chinese government issued a statement saying they hope that this conversation, which will happen in a little over half an hour between the two leaders, will be an opportunity to try to begin the improvement generally of the U.S.-China relationship. So I hope that's, in fact, the perspective the president has, while, of course, making the points that uh, China... Uh, uh, will, uh, if it seeks to support uh, Russia to get around the sanctions, will uh, itself uh, have a serious cost. Ambassador, do you think that it's realistic for China to want to send weapons, to want to send military support to Russia? Well, again, we don't know, I believe, whether that's actually happened. We have a leak from, uh, uh, or at least perhaps even an on the record from the U.S. intelligence community uh, that uh, Russia asked for uh, such weapons. Uh, we don't, I think, have a leak of what the Chinese response was. But certainly, if it uh, makes a decision to uh, uh, supply Russia with weapons in the context of this war, it will be a further very serious blow again. Uh, uh, on U.S.-China relations, uh, the most serious one in many, many years. 
Ambassador, I noticed a line in one of your recent Bloomberg opinion pieces that really stuck out to me. Russia will remain a threat so long as Putin leads it. China will remain a challenge irrespective of its leader. That is a much longer term view. And how do you think the immediate need to focus on Eastern Europe detracts from a longer term strategic pivot towards China, toward Asia? Well, uh, my colleague Richard Fontaine and I wrote uh, a recent uh, op-ed for Bloomberg exactly on this subject. Uh, there was a bipartisan uh, agreement in Washington, one of the few, one might say, sadly, uh, that the uh, United States should reorient its foreign policy uh, toward Asia. That, of course, has been turned on its head by the recent events uh, in Ukraine and the brutal uh, Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine. Now, I think without any doubt, we're going to have to moderate that, uh, that pivot to Asia. It will be slower and less encompassing because we have to first stabilize Europe along with our uh, allies. And that will mean more US troops in Europe forward deployed into Eastern Europe. And we have to, I think, do more uh, in the Middle East. Uh, since the Obama administration, Middle East uh, friends of the United States have been uh, convinced we're leaving the Middle East. We have to disabuse them of that notion. And it's only if we can have stability in the Middle East and in Europe to a much greater extent than at present will we be able to make a full-fledged pivot to Asia. Robert, just a final question from me looking ahead to next week and the talks. You've been inside government many times. You understand the inner workings of events like this. Do you need to arrive in Europe next week with some deliverables for the president of the United States to meet with foreign leaders next week? And what do you think they would be? Well, first of all, we have to see what happens between now and then. And Russia seems to be escalating. Uh, they attacked uh, Lviv for the first time overnight. Uh, if that continues, and let's... Uh, Keep in mind the danger of Russian use of chemical weapons against Ukrainian cities, then obviously there'll be an escalation in our reaction. Uh, but I think the primary, in the absence of that, uh, the primary uh, presidential objective will be to keep this alliance together uh, to uh, uh, and it's been remarkable. I think most people did not believe the alliance would act uh, as resolutely as it has to uh, this tragedy, yeah. to keep them together and to prepare for uh, next steps that Russia, Putin might take in order uh, to uh, further the destruction uh, of uh, Ukrainian cities. They've been incredibly, be incredibly united. Robert, we're lucky to have you with us this morning. Thank you, sir. Robert Blackwell there on the talks between China and the United States. Mike Schumacher, the global head of race strategy at Wells Fargo, joins us now. Mike, have you been surprised by how much weight we've added to the front end of the yield curve? And are you surprised to some degree how easily we've shaken off some of the comments of this Fed this week? Yeah, I have been surprised, John. It's been just amazing, frankly, to watch the action in the front end of the U.S. And it's, it's driven by so many factors. The Fed, other central banks to a degree, and the inflation outlook. But the front end's been incredibly volatile. Sure, yields are up a ton. We thought they'd be up a bit, but they've blown by our expectations. There's not much doubt about that. The curve is starting to get messy, Mike. Seven-year yields above tens. Saw a bit of that with fives, threes almost going there, threatening to do that yesterday morning. The yield curve is starting to invert. 
it's flatter at the long end. Two's tens, 23 basis points. Two's thirties, let's call it 52, down four basis points today again. How do you think that evolves in the coming months, Mike? It's flatter still. If you look at the forward rates, John, they'll price, let's say, twos, tens to be completely flat in three or four months, something along those lines. I think it could actually invert before then. We've been telling clients, you've got to think outside the box a bit here. This is an incredibly unusual situation. The inflation backdrop is unique in the last 30 to 40 years. It's possible twos, tens, inverts to the tune of 50 basis points or more by the end of the year. But as far as the path forward, flatter, more painful for a lot of institutions. So, uh, Mike, a lot of people are wondering whether an inverted yield curve still means a recession. And I'll go a step further. Does an inverted yield curve in and of itself cause a recession, as we were talking about the potential earlier today? What's your view on this? I'd say no to both, Lisa. So there is a very good relationship between curve shape and future economic growth, let's say prior to the financial crisis. Since then, the central banks have been so active buying bonds, they've really broken that link. So the ability of the curve shape, let's say, to predict GDP growth out 12 months, 18 months, that's diminished a lot. So I wouldn't worry so much about the predictive power, but I think the second question is really interesting in terms of does a flatter curve help cause a recession? And it probably contributes, in particular, when you think about the financial sector. If your basic business is borrowing long and you say, well, what can I do? Or you want to want to borrow long, you want to lend short or flip it around, you can't really do much if the curve is flat. So that intermediation function doesn't work very well. And I think that takes away a lot of profitability opportunities for banks and even for the shadow banks. So a flatter curve is tough for financials and therefore it's tough for the whole system. And there's also an additional yield curve that Tom Sitsouris of Strategas, who was on our show earlier this morning, was talking about, that if you see uh, the Fed funds rate get higher than that two-year rate, that that actually hurts the people who need it the most. And what you get is a causative effect on Main Street. I'm wondering from your, from your perspective, whether you agree with that, whether you think the Fed should back off from raising rates as much as perhaps they're talking about and lean more heavily on the balance sheet. No, I don't actually. When you think about the, let's say the inflation backdrop right now, it's terrible. And I think if you talk to most people out there in the US, and we all do this in our daily lives, Inflation is everywhere. You can't really avoid it. So what the Fed needs to do very simply is step up and fight inflation. That's very abundant from an economic perspective. It's very clear from a political perspective. That's what the Fed needs to get done is to fight inflation, put that genie back in the bottle. So it needs to raise the funds rate a number of times. It can't focus simply on the balance sheet. Balance sheet's a nice add-on, but it really has to lead with Fed funds, in my opinion. Well, let's talk further about the balance sheet, with which Jerome Powell did not really get to do much on Wednesday. Maybe he will more next week when we hear from him twice. But he basically equated that runoff to the equivalent of a hike. How do you view it, Mike? Yeah, I think the Fed struggles in terms of that equation. From my perspective, it's a little bit different. We may as well compare apples to bananas. doesn't make that much sense. But what the balance sheet does, in our view, is really addresses risk appetite very directly. So if you think about the basic trade during the year of quantitative easing, it's pretty simple. When central banks buy more bonds, you're supposed to buy more stocks. That's worked really well. Now, if you flip it, you'd say, well, okay, if the Fed and other central banks are reigning in the balance sheet, that's probably a pretty big negative for risk assets. So I think that stands out. The Fed can take some froth out of that market. The other thing I suspect the Fed and other central banks are trying to accomplish is to limit that yield curve inversion, limit that flattening. So if the Fed backs away from buying 10-year treasuries, 20-year treasuries, et cetera, you should all else equal see those yields go up. So that should help limit the downside from a flatter curve. 
Well, if you say QT could be a sizable negative for risk assets, do you think risk assets are appropriately pricing that? I suspect probably not. I think that when you look at the risk asset landscape right now, it's been driven primarily by the overall idea that yes, central banks will tighten, that's a bad thing. And then secondly, of course, the big commodity spike. So balance sheet probably is number three. And at least from my perspective, I think that the risk markets have not fully priced it. So which risk, asset, which risk market, excuse me, it is a Friday, is most uh, uh, underpriced for this uh, potential risk? Yeah, it's hard to pin it on one, Lisa, but when you think about risk appetite across the board, I'd say I would focus on the central banks being the most involved in QT. So the Fed probably leads the way, followed by the Bank of England, Bank of Canada. So within those markets, whether it's high yield bonds or equities, tough to sort of parse those differences, but I would go to the, the dicier parts of risk. So within markets, do you want to focus on, or do you think the risk is more susceptible to the high end? I think it is the, the assets that typically are the higher beta, most likely of me most impacted by this cutback in the balance sheet. The reason why I ask, Michael, is because there's a lot of disagreement about how much momentum there is in the U.S. economy to withstand the potential for 2.8% Fed funds rate, to withstand some of the rate hikes that you and others are saying is absolutely necessary in order to curtail what you see as dangerous inflationary pressures. So at this point, do you think that the Fed can uh, actually orchestrate a soft landing at a time when there are diverging viewpoints and diverging data points underpinning the economy? It'll be very difficult to pull off a soft landing. I think, Lisa, it was always going to be a challenge when you think about the massive amount of stimulus in the system over the last couple of years, both monetary and fiscal, the rebound from COVID on top of that, the commodity spike. That's an incredibly big ask to talk about a soft landing. So it was always going to be tough. I think it's gotten much tougher. The chance of it happening probably is falling by the day. So is it 50-50? Maybe. It's probably not much better than that. All right, Mike, we've talked about risk assets. We've talked about the bond market. Can I just get your thoughts quickly on the dollar, which in light of everything we heard from the Fed this week is heading for its biggest weekly decline since early February? Yeah, we think that's a mistake. We're actually dollar bulls. And it's interesting. You can think about this from two perspectives, really. If you look back over the last last couple of years and also just over the last couple of months, the dollar has emerged as the top safe haven. So that should be a win if the Ukrainian situation intensifies, which seems likely over the next month or two. And secondly, if you focus on really one of the meat and potatoes types of things in FX, it's interest rate differentials. And I would say that the, at least from our view, there's more potential for the market to increase its expectations for hiking from the Fed than there is from the ECB, probably from the Bank of England. So that also should benefit the dollar. So we're actually very positive on the US dollar right now. Mike Schumacher, thank you. Fantastic call early this year on the bond market. Mike Schumacher there of Wells Fargo. Katie Kaminsky joins us now, Chief Research Strategist at Alpha Simplex. Katie, 3% this year. Can we just work through that? What would happen if they tried to raise the Fed funds to 3% this year? Oh, that's a hard one because the truth is I would love to do that and raise the Fed funds rate to 3%, but that has repercussions and it needs a little bit of balance in terms of not uh, affecting growth and causing disruption in the markets. So I think the Fed is probably choosing to be a little bit more conservative and kind of ease into this new decision and how to actually move into a regime of raising rates. So I think there's a difference between what might, 
one might want and what is actually achievable um, in sort of short order. Achievable without the disruptions that you talk about. Is this basically the modern form, the new form of a Fed put that they will move much more slowly than perhaps they would want to simply because they do not want to incur uh, huge losses in the equity markets? Yes, because I think the challenges, remember, as rates rise, we have sort of industries that have more duration exposure, we have potential tightening of credit, we have other issues that could cause businesses to be a little more squeezed with higher rates. And so I think the challenge is balancing between not affecting growth and encouraging um, encouraging good economic practice, but at the same time, not disrupting the market. I mean, traditionally, whenever the market uh, has been faced with a rate hike, it, we usually have sort of a sell-off in some way. So I was pretty impressed that the market was relatively calm this week about this decision, but maybe that's because everybody knew it was coming. Well, impressed so. though, at the same time, Katie, we did see a change tone from Fed Chair Jay Powell, even indicating balance sheet reduction as soon as May. I'm just wondering, are we actually re reacting to the words? Are we actually reacting to the press conference? Or are we reacting to the Fed that we have known over the past 10 years, which is one that is beholden to a certain common markets? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I think we've been asking the same question all last year. Are we ever going to see this type of move? On our side, what we do see is sort of the technical signals that show that rising rates are coming and sort of the trend themselves really sort of has been indicative that we're going to see these rising rates in the long term. I think the real challenge is them sort of shifting regimes and sort of being more actionable. And I think that's something that we really still have to see. And I think you indicated that in the sense that we've kind of seen them being a little bit more complacent in this area. Um, but I think when you're dealing with inflation at the level we're seeing right now, the pressure is going to come from a lot more places um, yeah. and that will push them more. Katie, the markets knew coming into this year about those inflationary pressures and the likelihood of tighter monetary policy resulting from that. What it couldn't have anticipated was a war in Eastern Europe. Do you think the market is still underpricing the risks around both of those things happening simultaneously as we see the S&P 500 coming off its best three days since November of 2020? That's a good question, because I think most people are asking themselves this right now. But the truth is, from our cross-asset perspective, we really seen that some of the trends going into the Ukraine crisis really just extended. So what that means is we saw an extension of current themes, inflation theme actually extending even further. And we had massive moves, particularly in the energy markets. So some of us are thinking that there may be some consolidation at this point, meaning that some of the concern and some of the supply chain issues are priced in. Um, but there is still definitely room because, as you know, geopolitical uncertainty is very difficult to predict and things can change quickly and in different directions than we would like. Um, so what I would say is we may not be pricing it all in, but that may be just because it's hard to know how to do that. Katie, just quickly, just finally on the Fed, if we can finish there. Lisa and I were talking about this with Tom earlier this week. This felt like the December Fed meeting where Chairman Powell said everything he needed to say in the news conference and people didn't really listen to it. And then they reacted to it when the same thing came out in the minutes, as if the minutes were some kind of hawkish surprise. Do you think we're setting up for the same kind of thing again? Oh, that, yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, I, I wish I knew the answer to that question. I think most people are really sort of in a period where they're not 
reacting much right now. I feel like the market has moved already. Um, and the key question is, does the market already anticipate that? Um, and so I'd say that we're seeing some consolidation, some of the positioning kind of coming off for certain trades. Interesting. Which suggests that people, so you saw that flattener kind of turn into a steepener a little bit this week, which means that people had betted on this move or a bet on this move and now they saw it. So there's a little consolidation. What I'd say is short term respite, a little bit of back and forth, and then more focus on the next time we have an opportunity for a hike. Kelly, thank you. Kelly Kaminsky of Alpha Simplex. Christian Maggio joins us now, the head of portfolio strategy at TD Securities. Christian, can we start there with Saudi Arabia over the murder of Khashoggi? You remember people stepped back from Saudi Arabia and then they were back in Riyadh 12 months later. This feels different for a lot of people. Do you agree with Blue Bay there, that line, that Russia will be in the isolated wilderness for a long time to come? A regime change in Russia is probably a prerequisite for reinvestment for many. Yeah, I think I agree with that statement. Um, the two situations are very different because the uh, the Saudi case was against one single person. While well, here, we're talking about a whole nation, uh, and I'm talking about Ukraine being involved. Um, but there will probably be some money coming back. Um, probably some money will not leave at all. But the problem is, even when you remove sanctions, um, what's the reputational risk of being associated to a regime that by many has been considered um, to be a murderous and genocidal one? So Christian, what is the contagion risk to other emerging markets, given the fact that this isn't going away, certainly not in the financial world for a long time? Well, first of all, we see contagion right now through uh, risk aversion and through uh, commodity prices. Commodity prices uh, were already on the upside, but they are definitely um, getting pushed much higher because Russia is a great commodity producer, energy, agricultural uh, metals. Um, so that's not going to go away immediately because we have just too many supply side disruptions uh, involved in this conflict. Uh, then you can have uh, a default, a Russian default yeah. uh, that everybody's talking about. And that's another risk. Well, but the market views that as a lesser risk today than it did yesterday, Christian, on the news that Russia sent that $117 million payment to JP Morgan, who then sent it on to Citi. We don't know where it went after Citi, and yet we've seen Russian CDS coming in substantially. Is the market being overconfident? No, you're right. Uh, the point is, uh, what you're talking about is two coupon payments that were due a couple of days ago. So they were already paid um, with some delay, which is not a very good sign. Uh, but uh, we have uh, numerous more uh, um, coupon payments and uh, redemptions coming due uh, in the rest of the year and over the next uh, 12, 18 months. So the 28th and the 30th of uh, March, we'll see another couple of uh, interest payments worth uh, about $190 million. So the market will be uh, you know, holding uh, its it, it, it's breath for uh, quite some time every time these payments come due. Christian, in the meantime, I wonder how you think the global pool, let's say, of central bank reserves and the denomination of them is going to evolve in the coming months. If you were a central bank governor, a leader of, let's say, a state with questionable leadership in the eyes of the West, what you would do with your dollar reserves right now? Well, you're quite right. First of all, I wouldn't want to be on the bad side of uh, of the U.S. Uh, that has weaponized the um, uh, international reserves uh, in a way of, uh, um, you know, freezing uh, dollar uh, assets. Uh, the first, the first, uh, 
first point is where do I diversify my reserves into? Into euro, but the euro is also subject to the same risks. Uh, then you can go into renminbi, but uh, renminbi is not really a currency that you can uh, uh, just yet use for uh, international payments. Uh, so it's um, it's a bit of a conundrum. Uh, maybe gold, uh, you can be in physical gold, but that's not as liquid as currencies. Uh, so wherever you go, uh, you know, the dollar is the global reserve uh, currency and uh, for a good reason. Christian, do you think that there still is a very real risk, going back to the Russian default scenario, that the payment could get stuck in the pipes? I mean, this has been something that we've been talking about. We really haven't seen this before. Are there bigger implications for this? Yes, that's uh, that's probably the uh, the biggest risk because uh, Russia has demonstrated uh, to have uh, at least for now willingness to pay. Uh, they definitely have the capability to pay until they drain uh, the cash available in these frozen accounts. Uh, the question is, is, is it even a default if a payment doesn't reach the bondholders? Not because the uh, the, the the debtor. Uh, didn't make the payment, but because there are restrictions and international sanctions. I think this is uh, completely uncharted territory, and it will be very controversial, but the risk is very real. Christian, we've got to leave it there. This is a fascinating conversation. We'd love to continue it with you. Christian Matcher there of TD Securities. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.